So this morning, we continue with um, Noah's, the, the portrait of who Noah is. Um, as you noticed there uh, last week, we spoke of the favor in verse 8. If you're there in chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor uh, in the eyes of the Lord. And we spoke just briefly about uh, what we mean by uh, Noah having found favor with God. This unconditional uh, arrangement that Noah experiences uh, unilaterally uh, on God's activity toward Noah. Noah is found uh, to receive favor from God, and there's no prerequisite condition within Noah that then brings this favor. There's nothing inside of any human being that commends itself redemptively to God. That's not just true of Noah. And we're not using Noah to speak about that relationship uh, in a way that uh, works for our argument. Whether we're with Noah or or, or we move forward throughout the entire revelation of all 66 canonical books, and if we speak of catechisms and our understanding of the systematization of Scripture, we understand again and again and again, there is, as Paul says, no one who does good. There is not a single one. Universal negative. No one is left outside of that uh, summary. So to be found in favor from God is not because he was currently acting rightly and purely, and that commended him to God. Therefore, he was found with favor. Rather, we recognize Noah found favor, just like the same testimony with any here at this point who confesses the name of Christ in faithfulness, true, genuine faith, a saving faith. There is nothing that commended you to God that then you'd experience such a faith. It was all of grace. We sang of that a few moments ago. I hope we all saw it. I had the pleasure of being able to speak of it this morning to our children in Sunday school. That the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And, and that's what we find in uh, Noah in his culture. Same circumstance. Very intense. So much so that what we read about then this morning is the action of the flood. Because of the corruption on the earth. And here's this man Noah who experienced the unilateral working and grace of God. So also with you who profess his name that to get out from the deceitfulness of our own hearts is an act that we cannot perform. But it is an act of pure, sovereign grace. If you're here and you doubt your relation to Christ, if it's a saving faith, if your faith does truly rest upon him, that you entrust yourself wholly and completely to him, that he must act and draw me into him. If you're in doubt on the relations of that, then you must repent. That is, for one to repent is to confess one's wrongness, sin, transgression, transmissions against the law of God, trespasses, to confess that wrongdoing. And in so doing, turn to Christ solely as the Savior, solely as he who is righteous, apart from any sin. And that I entrust myself to him. I rest upon him for salvation. And, and he does indeed forgive me 
And, I, and it's not a full repentance where I kind of get out of circumstance of circumstances. I truly, genuinely repent. And I, my repentance is shown thereafter as I endeavor after a life of new Christ obedience. Again, speaking with the children this morning, the same idea. That, that, that repentance to mom and dad isn't to, like, you know, get out of our present set of circumstances. Even though we've all admitted we all raise our hands together. We've done, indeed, that. Confessed because it was in our interests to kind of get this little awkwardness between us out of the way. Get back to our set of circumstances that we're pursuing. Sure, we've all been there. Yes, 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 yes. But we all also be honest that that's not true repentance. True repentance involves an endeavor after a life of new obedience. This is the life of the Christian on pilgrims, uh, the pilgrims on the way on this Lord's day, gathering together yet again to be refreshed and to endeavor after a life of new obedience and conformity to the word of the Lord. But the presentation of Noah. We continue with him because uh, as we learn of him experiencing this sovereign grace of God, this, this unconditionally elected love of God that he experiences, it, it, what the presentation is from Noah as an individual that follows, you see in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. What do we know about this man who found grace, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord? He was a righteous individual. He was blameless. It goes so far as to say that, indeed, he was blameless in his generation. And we looked at that, again, what we mean by blameless uh, last week. But the summary statement perhaps can be gathered, this statement that is also shared with Moses, and that is Noah walked with God. That is, Noah had a life of actionable faith. Again, perhaps we're diseased in evangelicalism with a faith that uh, confesses with the mouth, but is detached from the life. That uh, hopefully we don't repeat the same errors in our children through catechesis and through the Apostles' Creed. That if you can say this, then you're accounted one of them. But remember, this is to be said from the heart, to confess with the mouth. Truly what is embraced and believed in the heart that what would flow in your life of repentance, what would flow in your life of faith is And this is absolutely critical to the presentation of Noah as an individual. So much so, the writer, that is Moses, wants us to understand this man Noah as a man of action. And then you as a reader are supposed to fall into the conviction of that reading. You're being led into that as a reader. That that Noah is this, this blameless character. And and it's not just in a vacuum, but it's in contrast. It's not an abstract that Noah is blameless. It's in contrast, concrete form, to the wicked culture around him. So that the norms of culture are this way, and Noah is walking this way. This is the presentation of the text. This is what's supposed to strike you as an individual of faith who reads this text as binding on your own conscience. That then, where am I in the portrait of Noah? I am to be an individual who, if I confess the same Lord that Noah does, I would have a life of grace that actionably moves forward like his also. So heavy is the presentation of Noah as a man of actionable faith that maybe you have not considered this, so let me point it out. There is absolutely no dialogue. Have you noticed that? If you're reading chapter 6, so you pick up with Noah at the end of 5, 
in the genealogy. And then you move into chapter 6. And so far we're through chapter 6. We're just about, we're going to conclude it today. And have you noticed that in all of the flood narrative, all the story, all that he has been told, there's absolutely no dialogue recorded between Noah and God? Does that strike you? Again, if you were to go beyond chapter 6, Noah's very first words are after that tent episode, of which we'll get to someday. It's that awkward episode between him and his sons. And that's the first time Noah speaks. Now think about what's taking place in Noah's life. I mean, the entire world has been decimated. Noah and his family alone are sole survivors. I mean, that's a pretty big event. Yeah, I mean, I, I've told some of you stories, and I speak often here at the church, and I can take a small story and make it a long one. I've gifted in that. Um, my daughter Claire shares with me. We're both plagued with that gift. Um, so, so it is that, right? Um, yeah, all this took place and transpired in Noah's life, and he doesn't say a word. Why not? Because the presentation is to craft Noah in a particular light that is of interest to us. That God wants us to grasp. And that is that Noah is a man of faith in action. That is, Noah, his righteousness, his blamelessness is displayed through the fact that he does not make a single protestation regarding God's justice to make an end of all flesh. Think about how we quibble so quickly over such small events in our own lives. Providences, circumstances, relationships, and so forth. Things that we feel we're owed. And then we whine and gripe and complain. Or we have some sort of excuse to walk away from the faith. Or we have some reason that's justified in our mind to be resentful toward God. Because he's withheld some sort of situation that we desire. And yet, God is here going to wipe out all flesh. And Noah is presented as not even uttering one single protestation. It's striking if you let it sit. It's striking. What are we supposed to make of it? All we can make of it is the fact that it bolsters the frame of Noah as a blameless individual. He believes God so that he doesn't sit and blame him. Like, you're making a wrong call here. I've met a lot of nice people. He receives God's authority in his life. And he understands the distinction that oftentimes we fail to grasp, and that is a distinction that is critical to our lives and joy. The distinction between the creator and the creature. And we read about it today in our Romans 9 portion. Will the clay really turn back to the potter and rebuke the potter for how it was made? For Noah, he's like, no, I won't. That's the presentation that Moses is giving us of this blameless individual, the man who walked with God. So it is to be in our own lives. He accepts by faith all that God is in his essence, all that he has revealed himself to be, and all that he does is just. Now, it's interesting when you get down to the portion of verse 14, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And, and then he goes on to say a lot. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. Um, what's of interest here is we have no indication whatsoever that Noah was a master craftsman, particularly of shipbuilding skill. 
We have, no, we have no knowledge of this with Noah at this point, right? We have no indication that he knew how to do this particular task. But clearly, Noah is possessed with great skill. He is able, if you think about it just for a moment, and some of you might have gone out to the Ark Encounter. I don't know if it's open now. I know they've been building it over several years. Uh, does someone know if the Ark Encounter is available? Like, you can visit it or whatever by now. Yeah. And it's a massive project. So if you were to put it to scale and you're like, oh, I think they got the scale fairly correct and, and I think that this seems to be as regionally as close to what it would have been regionally there and, uh, as far as the trees and so on and so forth. What are you to walk away from that experience with the biblical text and kind of combining them together? You would grasp with us, right, clearly Noah possessed great skill. I mean, just being able to fell the trees properly, remove the bark, shape the logs, drive the pegs, and ultimately make a very complicated and massive seaworthy vessel. That was a huge undertaking. And again, we know nothing of his speech until chapter 9. So why are we told so much about his building and the very specific instructions of what he is to do? Even to the, the little note there, if you notice in verse 14, I believe, it says cover, yeah, inside and out with pitch. In other words, make sure you caulk the seams. And if we were to go down and say, okay, well, this is what is all going on here, and th- th- these are the bits and the pieces and the parts, uh, I think one author cautions us wisely. He says, quote, the author's purpose, that is Moses, Moses' purpose in drawing out this list of specifications is that the readers may appreciate the meticulous care with which Noah went about his task. Now notice what he says. His task of obedience to the will of God. Not so that we might mirror or notice and really rejoice over the meticulousness of his shipbuilding. Right? We would be like, yeah, that is. But, but, but it wasn't. That. The point is, Noah went about his task of obedience Noah undertook the ark accomplishment and all of its sacrifice and all of its efforts for one single reason. He believed God. It was an act of obedience. Now, sometimes when we read stories like this, and they become so familiar at times, they become these legendary individuals of times past in the hall of faith. And we think, what an amazing individual he was. But then we kind of, by doing that, minimize his adversity. And we do that whether it's with Abraham, or whether we do it with Moses, or we'd rather do it with Joshua, we'd rather do it with David. Many times we can just kind of, it almost does become so commonplace it becomes abstract. And they're almost, they're almost mythologized as human beings. And we forget, like, no, he's an actual human being that had to go see this tree and begin felling it. Then sit there in the hot sun, ripping down the bark. We, we skip the human nature of what's actually taking place here. And I want to highlight another piece that would have been very difficult. And I think Luther gets it right. Luther comments about this episode saying, It was not easy to believe that the entire human race would perish. Think about your own life now in the proclamation of the gospel this morning. Our faith needs to be aroused because it falls to slumber. Luther's comment. 
It was not easy to believe that the entire human race would perish. The world regarded Noah as exceedingly stupid for believing such things. It derided him and without doubt also made his structure the object of ridicule. You see, we're much more wed to them than sometimes we think. You know, Noah, Noah, Noah got through, Noah uh, made it through the flood, this miraculous situation. He had a, a great experience and really knew God. But, but, but my life is somehow different. And my life is so different and so unique and so, uh, you know, particular to me that, um, uh, and then enter excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse based on our own circumstance and uniqueness. There's a number of reasons why I can't be faithful like Noah. We could all sit here and begin listing them on the whiteboard. We all have unique reasons why we can't obey Noah faced those unique challenges too. And he is herein recorded, if you notice it in verse 22, what is said of the man Noah? And it's said also in verse 5 of chapter 7, but verse 22, Noah did this. That's what he did. So I want you to take all of these animals. I want you to take all of this wood. I, I, I want you to take all of this food. I want you to, to build these rooms. I want you to hang the door on its side. In all of this effort to go in. And then Luther. It wasn't easy simply to believe the human race was going to perish. The world regarded Noah as exceedingly stupid for believing such things. What do we see, though? Noah did it. And then the final comment of, of, of the chapter is he did all that God commanded him. And we mustn't just read it and say, because it was probably easy. But it's not for me. You wouldn't understand. Same with verse 5 of chapter 7 in the presentation of the man Noah. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, Where we pick up then also in our text with verse 17 and 18 is a contrast. The contrast is being drawn between the righteous man, Noah, the man of faith, that we we are encouraged to see, that we are encouraged to emulate, that we are encouraged to recognize our same set of confession and life lived before the face of God, that we too are to be faithful in difficult circumstances. We even when asked to do difficult things. And there's a huge contrast here in verse 17. Notice it with me. Verse 17, for behold, here's the proclamation. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, and there's only going to be one response, destruction. I'm going to destroy all flesh in which there is breath under heaven. And in case we miss the idea of all flesh, he clarifies, everything that is on the earth shall die. And then he speaks to Noah this way, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. Now I want to read verse 18. And as I do so, I want you to really notice the redundancy of a particular terminology. Notice the redundancy of the term. Verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. 
and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. You see, if, 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 you, if you took a highlighter and you just highlighted how many times he just now said you to Noah, and then maybe you framed a sentence along with that many references to you, and you're in a single conversation with one person, see how awkward that would get, how quickly. I get it. You're speaking to me. I get it. You can come over here, you and him. And then he can come with you because you're coming over here, you and you, and, and then him, and then you. But it's all because of you. Like, okay, I, I'm the center of this conversation. Because what's the point of him belaboring or using the word you to address Noah in a single conversation with no one else standing there with the redundancy of the term you? It further highlights Noah's unique character as one who is righteous and blameless before God. It's Noah's unique character. I'm making my covenant with you. I'm going to destroy everything, everything that has breath. All of it's going to die. But with you, I'm doing something different. I'm making a covenant with you. And, and, and you, 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 and you come with you because I'm coming with you, individual Noah. That is... What am I trying to get at awkwardly? It is simply this. Noah is the primary recipient of God's gracious covenant. It's Noah who is the primary recipient of God's gracious covenant. Now, what is the gracious provision in this covenant? The act of deliverance is a part of this covenant. You see that in verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter into the ark. God's gracious provision that is redemptive for Noah, that is saving for Noah through the devastation of the floodwaters, is the ark of salvation. If you look at verse 14, you notice Noah is commanded to build it. Make an ark. And now after he describes all that's taking place and how he ought to make this ark, he tells Noah, here in our binding relation, this is your relationship to me. It's a life in the ark. Build it and now get in it for the sake of your salvation. If we were to go to uh, Peter, and we'll, we'll, again, some other time, some other day, but if we were there at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, uh, 20 and 21, Peter's uh, looking back on Noah and what's taking place, and he says, um, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Referencing the ark as the means of God's salvation to Noah and his family. I'm going to destroy everybody but you. And, you know, all those people behind you, they're with you. How are you going to deliver us? The ark that I had you build, get in it. You and all those people with you. I'm going to save eight persons. One author makes this comment to help us understand the ark and the presence that it meant for Noah and his family to be in the ark. It is this, quote, By this covenant, God commits himself to save the community that was calling on his name and bestow on them his holy kingdom in the ark. Now, I want to draw your attention to an important, and I want you to stay with me for this. I, I, I can tell everyone's brain is moving Tremendously today. 
I'm looking out and I see like more eyes open than closed. No, just kidding. Um, no, I, so, so think with me. Move with me and think with me here. I want to draw your attention to something that's, I think, very important. And, and hopefully it won't be just important to me. It'll be important by the time we're done with everyone. But I know it's important to me. Um, and that is, I want you to see what is here is an essential element. And, and I say essential, and, and, I, and I provide that to you to, to evaluate. But it's an essential element of God's covenant dealings with his people. And I think it's being revealed here. So, right, so, so I'm drawing your attention to verse 18. Maybe you're, you're sensing where I'm going. But I want you to see verse 18. I'm going to destroy all flesh. But with you, individual, I'm making my covenant. You. Not, not, not them, 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 them. I'm making it with you. And, and, and what we hear, have here is we begin to read and we begin to look at the Noahic covenant and then we move to the Abrahamic covenant and we, and we look at the covenants of Scripture across. What we see is this is how God constructs covenants. These are the relationships that he binds himself to. What are they like? An essential element I want you to notice first because I'm saying, again, it happens in, in, in God's covenant outworkings. God's covenant distinguishes between those who are chosen as objects of particular blessing. So here's a covenant. I'm making a covenant with you. Here's some objects of particular blessing. And then there are those who will share somehow in this particular blessing. They will share in this blessing. So I'm making a covenant. I'm making it with you, particular objects of blessing. And then there's others in that covenant who experience blessing. And then there are those who are outside of that covenant who are in judgment. Do you see that? So, so you, you say, so God's making a covenant, and in his covenant, there are those who experience particular blessings, very particularized blessings, objects of mercy. And then within those objects that are in that covenant relation, there's another group of individuals who share somehow in that blessing. They're connected to that arrangement. And there are those who are outside of that covenant arrangement and are objects of judgment. This is where he says, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. Those are the objects of destruction, judgment, outside the covenant. But with you, I'm going to make a covenant. And this covenant is going to have particularized, particularized mercy for you. And there's going to be others in that covenant arrangement that are going to experience a different kind. They're going to experience blessings of this covenant relation, but not the exact response that you are going to experience, Noah. That is, notice carefully that Noah's wife and his sons and their wives were included in this gracious covenant. Let me read it one more time, and you'll see that. But I I wish to establish my covenant with you. Noah is the primary individual of the covenant. He's the person of the text that we know is righteous. He's the person that we know that is blameless. He's the person that we know that walked with God. He's the person that we know that did everything that the Lord commanded him. God is making a covenant with you, Noah, and you shall go into the ark. And then notice, notice he adds these individuals. You, again, Noah, I'm making a covenant with you, right? Your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Now notice the last little two words of verse 18. With you. That is, Noah's wife and his sons' And their wives are included in this gracious covenant purely because they belong to Noah. Do you see? 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1 says, in, uh, Then the Lord said to Noah, Get in the ark, you and all your household. Why? For I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. D- do you see that? It, Noah's commanded to enter the ark. And everybody in the household's getting in with him. And the grounds for why everybody in the household's getting in the ark with Noah is because I found that you, Noah, are righteous before me in this generation. Jump down in the text, verse 7, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 13 of chapter 7, just because we don't want to miss it, this is what it's being repeated again and again and again and again between verse 18. I'm making a covenant with you, Noah. You shall enter the ark. You. Your sons, your wives, your sons' wives. With who? With you. Get in the ark. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them, entered the ark. Hebrews 11, if we were to go to the New Testament again, and whether it's 1 Peter or now in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, if you wish the citation, it looks back on Noah in this, in this situation of the building of the ark and the entering of it, and it says this. Just hear how it describes these same elements of Genesis 6. He says, by faith. Noah, which we know is the key portion of the entire thing, right? Noah is constantly acting in faith. So by faith, yes, Noah, sure, we got that. Being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. Again, to Luther's comment, it wasn't easy for him to believe that the entire world was going to perish. And that he and the object of this huge wrath is an object of derision. It wasn't easy, but yet being warned of events yet unseen, Noah acted in reverent fear. And it says this statement, I want you to kind of perk up in your ears on it. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this act, he condemned the world around him and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, the family entered the ark. I want you to get, please uh, uh, think with me on this. The family entered the ark because of the head of the household's faith. I want you to let that percolate. Just put that on the brain and turn it on simmer. And just... If we take the whole picture here of the sons and the sons' wives and the wife and, 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 and Noah, and, and they're coming in, eight persons in total will experience the ark of salvation from the waters of destruction. 
And yet it's not that the sons were found because they were blameless before God or that the daughters, uh, the sons' wives were blameless or righteous in this generation, but it's because of you, Noah, that I make my covenant between me and you, and not just me and you, but all those people behind you that are with you. Why? Because they belong to you. We see here that God, indeed, through this flood story, wants the whole world restored. No doubt about it. But we also learn that he does it in stages. First, the destruction of the flood, then the receding waters, and then the, then the beginning of the blessing and the new world that's beginning to populate. So we learn that through the story, God wants the world restored, and he'll do it in stages, and he'll primarily do it through households. In fact, and this is where I want to conclude my time with you, so we just have a couple minutes to go. Just a couple, I promise. So much so do we know that God will primarily do his restoration through the household. That we do not see God making covenants with people without including their household. So ample is the biblical evidence. I know that's easy for me to say. But I wish to persuade you that so ample is the biblical evidence regarding God's covenant, consistent covenantal structures between him and his people. That just a few of these passages from Scripture maybe would help. Let me just begin reading them and think. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall get in the ark. You. Yeah, I got it. I'm coming. No, no. You, your sons, your wives, uh, or your wife and your sons' wives, they can come too with you. So also it is said in Scripture, Genesis 17, all who were born in Abraham's house were to be circumcised. The Lord, you recall, if you go to Genesis 12, the Lord, uh, sorry, the Lord plagued Pharaoh. Do you know what it says directly after that? And his house. The Lord closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Abimelech's sin. As a result of sin of Simeon and Levi, Jacob said, I shall be destroyed. I and my household. You get to Exodus and the Passover, and entire households were spared death. Entire households, from dad to mom to little ones, entire households were spared death because the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the door. Do you remember that victorious statement by Joshua? Does it intrigue you? Does it draw you in as a father, as a husband? Perhaps you're in a dating relationship as a boyfriend. You're thinking, when I, when I marry this young lady, am I, are we going to be a household? What kind of household will we be? You're moved by that statement of Joshua when he spoke to Israel and he declared, fine, 
but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And you say, well, where's the democracy in there? Dad, you spoke for me too soon. It doesn't work like that. It's covenantally binding. It's an arrangement. As goes the faith of the head of the household, so goes the family. I can speak for my house. We will serve the Lord. So also together, we believers are the household of God. You remember in Romans 4, we covered in our time of reading together, as I wind down my last couple of comments, you remember uh, as we work through Romans 4, Abraham, uh, curiously, is called the father of all those who believe. Why? Because it's covenantal. It's familial. We are the family of the people of God. You see... What I want to impress upon you is indeed that we can live a life of obedient faith and we must live a life of obedient faith. That's the text with Noah, the man of integrity, and not make constant excuses, micro-excuses for why we just kind of can't. But there's also something binding here regarding the way that God deals covenantally with us and our household. That God's dealings have not changed. That is, when God establishes a covenant relation, there are objects in that covenant relation of particularized blessing. And there are those who with them share in the broader blessings because they are with them. And there are those who remain outside of the covenant in judgment. My final thought to you regarding our families and God's covenant grace. Here with Noah, God's covenant of grace can be likened to a seed. And through Abraham, a few chapters later, it grows into a shoot. And by the time we stand reading the New Testament, we see that seed that grew into a shoot become full bloom in Christ, the Lord of the covenant. Sure, we could argue that the full bloom of the flower that we gaze upon now in the New Testament is more glorious and it's more magnificent and it's more stunning than the seed of Noah or the shoot of Abraham. But critically, critically, it is the same flower. God's covenant of grace is one. All who profess faith in Christ share therein with the man Noah, the man of faith, and Abraham, our father, in the faith. They and their children with them. Adam, get in the ark. You and all those little people with you. They belong to you, and I'm making a covenant with you. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us in the reading and the receiving and the preaching of your word. 
pray that you'd help us as your people to receive it as a guiding light, that we'd receive it as authority, that we would submit our thoughts, our hearts, our minds, our ethics to it. Pray that you give clarity to each of us regarding our obedience before you, that we would not be an excuse, constant excuse-making machine. But Lord, we would face honestly our transgressions. We would seek to put them to death by the power of your spirit. And we'd ask that you be gracious to us, empowering us to do so. Lord, we thank you for this church family. Thank you for the Bells and their joining with us and our opportunity to be with them. Pray that you would continue to be gracious to our assembly. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'll give you just a moment there of thoughtfulness. As you contemplate the words of the sermon, invite the worship team up, and we'll respond corporately in just a moment. Stand together, let's respond to the word of the Lord. Do it. 